There's a famous Christian prayer that comes to us from Ireland during the first millennium. Now, tradition attributes it to St. Patrick, who so unfortunately has become tied up with a holiday here in the United States where we dye the Chicago River green and people have a little bit too much to drink before they go home. But St. Patrick, if you don't remember, was a, a 5th century slave turned missionary. He was enslaved by the Irish people and after being freed, felt a burden to go back. He went back and brought the Gospel to the Irish people. And this prayer of St. Patrick has often been called St. Patrick's Breastplate. Now there's an amazing legend attached to this prayer that Patrick and his monks, while they were traveling to be missionaries to a new village, well, there was a, a certain pagan king that didn't like Patrick or his Christianity, so he sent a small band of soldiers to stop them. And somehow, in traveling on the road, Patrick sensed the danger and began praying this prayer of protection. And the story goes that when he and his men actually passed through, instead of seeing a group of missionaries, all the soldiers could see was a deer leading his little fawns along the road. And so they let them pass by unbothered. Now, while this story is very much a tall tale, we do, I think, from the prayer that is attributed during this time, get something passed down that's absolutely wonderful. The whole prayer is amazing. I encourage you to read the whole thing. But there's one particular stanza that has always stuck out to me. Patrick says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ at my right, Christ at my left, Christ in the fort, Christ in the chariot, Christ in the stern. And the idea there is that wherever we go and under whatever circumstances and whatever dangers we face in this life, Patrick reminds us that in everything, in everything, we depend on the Lord's presence for His protection. Christ within us and without us, on our left and our right, even in the chariots of those who oppose us, even in the sterns of the battleships that are against us, let Christ be present to us even there. So as we come to this passage this morning, Israel's final exodus from Egypt, what we've been looking for all along, this exciting climactic conclusion to their time in slavery, we're reminded that they are saved not only when God passes over them. We've been talking a lot about the Passover. He has passed over them in mercy, passed over their enemies in judgment. But we see now today that God even passes through their midst in guiding and guarding them. And so much of our attention for these past few weeks have been on not Israel, not Moses, not even God. It's been on Pharaoh. We've watched as his, his heart has got harder and harder in response to God's terrible strikes against Egypt and her pantheon. But now we get back to the real protagonist of the story this morning, namely the Lord God. Now, we may be watching Moses do a lot of work 
and saying a lot of things in this chapter. He is acting as God's human agent here. But make no mistake, folks, today's story is all about the Lord. He's the one in charge. It's He who's leading His people. It's He who's planning their escape route. It's He who's directing their every stop. It's He who's protecting their lives at every turn. And every step of their journey. And here's what's really amazing to me. Every step of their journey, whether they obey Him or not, whether they listen to Him or not, whether they believe in Him or not, whether they worship Him or not, every step of their journey, the Lord is continually passing through their midst, providing for them and protecting them. When they bring nothing to the table, He is always abundant in His grace and His mercy to His people. Every heartbeat and breath, every plate of food and drink of water, every new morning and new child that is born into the community is a gift from a God who lives not just over His people, but in their midst as well. And so this morning, let's look at our passage. Let's look at these first few verses, starting in verse 17 of chapter 13. Now in our first verses, we see that the that God leaves nothing to chance here. That this is not a haphazard journey that Israel's on. He knows the liability of, of, and the frailty and the doubt of His people. And in His wisdom, He keeps them from dangers they're not even aware of yet. After they leave Egypt, we read, even with all the, um, the urgency of their exit, we saw that they were supposed to be ready, have sandals on their feet, the staff in the hand, don't even put leaven in the bread, don't make time for that kind of baking, just have everything ready to go. And after the urgency of all of that, immediately He takes them, not on the most direct route to their promised land, but He takes them on a scenic route. Verse 17 tells us that their GPS would take them straight down Philistine roads. But lest they face immediate warfare and change their minds and go back to Egypt, He routes them elsewhere. This reminds us that the Lord is gracious and accommodating to the weakness of His people. When He leads us out of our old life. He leads us out of slavery to sin, debt to death. When He leads us out of that way, He knows that we are not strong and perfect. He knows that there is fear and doubt in our heart. And maybe even unbeknownst to us, He guides us in paths to allow us to avoid conflict and danger that we couldn't take. See, he knew the hearts of his people here were too frail to face any pushback. Now, these are called Philistine roads because that's generally in the region they were in. And in later centuries, Philistines would be the major problem. But at this point in history, they're probably not going to be the main problem. What, they're, what the Lord is probably protecting the Israelites from is Egyptian military outposts along the way. So they think they're out of danger. The Egyptians are behind them. And if they come across a band of Egyptian soldiers, they might just say, we're done. 
Their, their reach, their power extends all the way out here. We can't face them. So the Lord does something that seems to us maybe inefficient, but He takes them towards the path of the sea to box them in from Pharaoh's perspective at the Red Sea. But how often, Christian, have you found in retrospect maybe that the Lord has guided you through a metaphorical, scenic route in your life? Perhaps you would have planned for a more efficient pathway through your life. Perhaps you would have preferred a Google Maps version of your education and and career or your marriage and your parenting. Maybe you would have preferred if you opened up your Waze app on your iPhone and, and took a shortcut to get out of that sickness and suffering. But only when you look back can you see that God was leading you through the way that your heart needed for the long haul. After all, we're in this for the long haul. Our own personal story of redemption in our lives we see is wrapped up and bound up in the Lord's story and redemption of the entire world. And He's very patient when it comes to saving people. We may be very impatient and want to get to our destination without no problems. But the next verses here remind us of the larger story that we're in. See, we could pick up at the beginning of Exodus and this could be our first encounter with God. But the next verses remind us that this book of Exodus is connected to the book of Genesis. Because here's a character we haven't heard a lot about since the very beginning of, of, uh, of the book. Moses takes the bones of Joseph and leaves from Egypt. We've forgotten about Joseph. We had forgotten about his family. We had forgotten about all these things, but the Lord never forgets. See, lest we forget, Israel's time in Egypt and their, their time in slavery was just a horrific and long detour on God's greater path to the salvation of not only Israel, but of the world. And so while they got routed around uh, 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 to a path they weren't expecting through slavery, what we're reminded of now is that we're getting back on track of the main story of Scripture. That God didn't elect Israel to be a kingdom of slaves, but rather a kingdom of priests. They weren't meant to serve the world through cruel and backbreaking labor, but through loving God and serving their neighbor and therefore showing everyone, showing everyone, all of us mired in the swamp of sin and death, that this God is for the flourishing and redemption of all of humanity. He's always been good to His Word too. 400 years have passed since Joseph prophesied, God will certainly come to your aid. So you must take my bones with you from this place. And indeed, that's what happens. We may have forgotten. Plenty of the Israelites may have forgotten. But the Lord has not forgotten where our ultimate destination lies. And no matter what weavy, mountainous roads we pass through, we know we'll make it safely to where He leads us. And finally, if they couldn't believe any of this, they had a visible sign that God 
was passing through their midst all the time. In verses 21 and 22, we read the text describes images that we can, we can hardly imagine. Here we see a cyclone of smoky cloud by day and, and a tornado of fire by night. It's an image that's so hard for us to, to believe. And yet these two pillars that we see described are not two distinct pillars, but one otherworldly phenomena that happens where the Lord interacts with His people through this supernatural but natural phenomena. This, this towering presence of God that is always before the people. It's never leaving them. You know, you see footage of tornadoes form like this and they sweep through and then they leave. You see these climactic weather events happen and, and they're over with before you know it and they leave a, a trail of destruction. But we read that never, not day nor night, does God's presence and all its glory and all its power ever stop leading the people along. And in this windy pillar, what's most important is not just the fire and wind and fury we see here. That's not what we're really amazed at. What we should be amazed at that God's glory and presence is in the midst of His people. God was always with them, carving out their path ahead. And His presence, as we see, is not to be trifled with. But that gives great hope for those of us who are following Him. Can you imagine the terrifying sight of a self-aware cyclone howling in the desert day and night, roaring fire taller than the pyramids, and yet it is your guide and your protection? It would be too much to, to take in. So imagine the power behind the plagues on your oppressors. Now that power is behind your freedom, your liberation. But the stark reality is that from what's happening rather is that it's really what's, uh, uh, what's going on here is left up to the eye of the beholder. What I mean by that is from God's view, these people are being led to the promised land. But from Pharaoh's view, even with all the supernatural things going on, they're being boxed in. And even from Israelites, the Israelites' view we'll see in the coming verses, they're being trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea. But who do you think of all of these perspectives has the true view of reality? The Egyptians with all their pride, the Israelites with all their fear, or the Lord who created them both, whether they acknowledge it or not? We get our answer in verse 4 where God shows Moses what He's really doing as they see the Israelites coming after them. Or rather, they see the Israelites see the Egyptians coming after them. And they start quaking in fear. The Lord reminds Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. He will pursue the Israelites. But then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians and everyone else will know that I 
am the Lord. Now, if we're tempted to think that the Lord is too overreactive to Pharaoh and his armies, the next passage really shows us, it really reminds us of how deeply megalomaniacal Pharaoh is. How much he enjoys using his power to exploit others. Because after the Lord has devastated the land of Egypt, after they have all sorts of economic and cultural loss, and after they realize that Hebrews are more a problem than they are a solution, and they offer less blessing and benefit, um, keeping them than setting them free, even after all of this, we see a, a deadly pride surge up, not only in Pharaoh, but in the Egyptians. They, 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 they say together, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. See, the undertone here is that they are embarrassed that this podunk people has gotten the upper hand. It's not that they need the Hebrews. It's not that they need the Israelites, but they have released Israel from serving us. See, that's what their real focus is. It's not in, it's not in um, making sure their economy can be stable and all these things. It's the pride that they feel being able to oppress and put other people down. And the Israelites walking away scot-free like this is just too much for them to bear. And their response is just as prideful. Pharaoh summons his personal chariot and 600 best chariots from their military to absolutely inundate the 600 Israelite clans that we read about last week with an overwhelming show of force. Here they are probably largely setting out on foot, maybe with a donkey and sheep in tow. And, and Pharaoh is coming at them essentially with 600 ancient tanks to show them who's boss. That's what's mobilizing Egypt from their perspective. Pride. Humiliation. That they are no longer in control. But from the Lord's perspective, He's the one that's doing this. That's the amazing thing. From a a human sinful perspective, what animates us in this life can be so um, evil and, 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 and wicked and selfish and cruel. But even in that, the Lord has a way of taking all the disaster we throw at this world and weaving it into a perfect order. One of the most profound passages of Scripture to me comes to us at the end of Genesis where Joseph talking to his brothers who once sold him into slavery and now he's the the vice president of the entirety of Egypt and the greatest empire in the world at that time when his brothers realize the catastrophic mistake they've made that their little brother that they sold into slavery now is the commander of the free world. They respond the only way you would. Terror. But Joseph comforts them and says, what you meant for evil, what you meant for for only sinful, selfish, prideful, death-dealing purposes, God meant for good to the saving of many lives. 
So even here, when Pharaoh and all of his troops come after Israel, meaning to bring death, what the Lord is telling the Israelites, what He's telling Moses is that I will use even this evil for the salvation of so many more. Because once they get into the land of Canaan, some of the people that become integrated into the group of the Israelites do so because they'll say, we have heard what Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, has done to the Egyptians. And we fear Him too. One of those people is a person named Rahab. Rahab, who was a lady of the night in Canaan, becomes the great-great-great-grandmother of our Lord Jesus. Through what the Lord does in destroying the evil of Egypt, carves out a path of salvation centuries down the line. He works on such a higher level than we can understand, folks. Even when we in all our sin and pride do things to devastate one another, the Lord has a way of using it to bring salvation. Well, the Lord has hardened the hearts of the Egyptians, and He's going to show the Israelites and the world the cost of their evil. That this enormous military strength, this absolutely titanic empire of a people will be utterly routed by Yahweh. Not by Israelite military defense. Not by the the strategic planning of Moses and Aaron, but by God Himself. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says it this way, this event was not merely a successful rescue mission. In other words, Israelites rescued from slavery. But this was a historic victory over a tyrannical imperial power that would demonstrate Yahweh's infinitely superior kingship and justice. His glory to the world. So we not only see that God saves people, but we see that He is the ultimate King of the world. Well, if Pharaoh's actions don't surprise us, that he's hard-hearted, that he's stubborn, that he's prideful, that he's bent on sinning against God and His people. If that doesn't surprise us, personally, I think Israel's actions should surprise us all the less. Because while a pillar of cloud is leading them forward, a dust cloud is kicking up behind them under the hooves and wheels of Egypt. And so they respond the way they always do. They cried out to the Lord. Now, that's a good response in and of itself. But they also do something that they'll end up doing a lot over the next three books and in fact the entire Bible. They complain to Moses. Now, that's not a good response. See, their fear is so overwhelming. It drives them to the Lord in prayer. That's a good thing but it also drives them to start speaking nonsense, to sarcastically and angrily bemoan their situation. These people cried out to the Lord, oh, we can't take this slavery anymore. And here we read in verses 11 and 12, well, Moses, I guess you dragged us out in the desert because the graveyards in Egypt are already full. In fact, why did you drag us out here? Leave us alone. Let us go back. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt. 
It's an incredible response from them. But isn't it so sad what sin will make us say? What fear will make us disbelieve? Even though we've seen the miracles of the Lord, we're reminded of how He's taken care of us in this life. When we get a little afraid, suddenly all that goes out the window. Maybe it's just me, but I see myself so clearly in the response of the Israelites here. At the first whiff of opposition, we convince ourselves that we've been left alone with our battles. It doesn't matter how many promises the Lord has kept. It doesn't matter how many plagues He's unleashed on His enemies. At the first ominous rumble, we want to go whimpering back to the gods of this world that made life so cruel and bitter. But when the Lord sees trouble, He passes over it in judgment. While we, when we see trouble, we pass out from terror. Well, thank God that we are not saved by how we respond personally to disaster. Israel is not saved by her response to what's happening in the world ever. Instead, as Moses replies, don't be afraid. In fact, don't even run. Don't try to hide. Stand firm and witness the salvation that Yahweh will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You don't need to pick up a sword or a spear, a shield or a stone. The Lord will fight for you. What must you do, in fact? What does Moses say? Well, Israel, arm yourself to the teeth. Circle the the wagons in a panic. No. Surrender to the idols of your society. No. What does Moses say? Simply be quiet. That's it. Did you know that don't be afraid is the most frequent command uttered in the Old Testament? That's the kind of people that God is dealing with when He shows up even to save them. When He shows up into our lives, He has to calm us down. We're always on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Don't be afraid. That's the first thing that He says to us. Instead, stand there quietly. See, we love to do this. Ah, don't worry about that when we give advice. Don't worry about that. What you need to do is do this. Invest in this. Call this lawyer. Do this. You know, we're always telling each other to take action. Take control of your destiny, of your life. But when our life is in the mess, you know what Moses tells us to do? Don't be afraid. Simply be quiet. Watch as there's nothing you can do and watch how the Lord does everything for you. See what does he say? Does he say, look, look at the, look at the, the threat of Pharaoh's army. Look at, the, at the, the sea of water behind you, making an impassable route. No, Moses says, see the salvation of the Lord. That's what he tells Israel to keep their eyes peeled for. Look out in the world and watch the salvation of the Lord. 
Folks, this is too amazing. The Hebrew word for salvation here is Yeshua. From where we get the name Jesus. A name that means Yahweh is salvation. Church, did you know that this is God's command for you today? Don't be afraid. Don't even run. Be quiet. Stand still and see my salvation. Whatever you're facing in this life, whatever's rumbling on the horizon, whatever's causing your knees to shake and your heart to pound, this is all, this is all the Lord asks of you. Don't be afraid. Watch and see. My salvation is for you. And His name is Jesus. The Lord responds to Moses and the gang here almost in disbelief. Why are you crying out to me? That's, it's, it's a funny rebuke in a way. Because we're always crying out, oh Lord, God, help us out of this situation. He's going, I'm already doing it. What are you talking about? Don't you know that I'm going to save you? Could you really believe otherwise? It's from here He tells them to get ready to move. And he instructs Moses to raise his staff again. The same staff that Moses was when he was an 80-year-old man hobbling on in the hills of Midian watching those sheep headbutt each other in the hot desert sun. That same staff he was leaning on as an old man is the staff that God used to break the spine of every god in Egypt. Raise that staff again over this shallow, reedy sea, and I will divide the waters so you can walk on dry land. Does that sound familiar? Where God divides waters? you remember anywhere else in the Bible that happens? Maybe when He's creating the world, He's dividing the waters from the waters so that land could come forward, so that life could come forward, so that humanity could exist and be and worship God. Do you remember that? That's what God is doing again. He's creating life out of death. The sea is a symbol of death, and yet He is carving land in the middle of it. Land that will deliver His people. As for me, the Lord says, while I am doing that, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and the Egyptians' heart so that I can show this whole world that not them, nor any king, nor any empire, nor any country receives the glory, only I will receive the glory in the end. And I'll use their own weapons and warriors to shame them and to deliver you. Man, the hair raises on my neck as, as, it, as I'm in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 14. And we see the Lord, this Lord, this towering pillar of glory and fire and, and fury and justice. Now, leading the Israelites, passes through their camp and goes to stand guard at their backside. The Lord not only guides His people, the Lord guards His people. I can almost hear the sound of wind and, 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 and fury that's burning through the night. You know, they say, you know, a tornado is coming when it sounds like a train is barreling towards your house. Could you imagine what the Egyptians are feeling as they're in their little puny chariots 
with their little tiny show ponies, and there is a barreling pillar of fire rushing towards them. No wonder we see that the Israelites and the Egyptians don't even come close to one another. And the following scene is one we all know so well. Moses, after getting his people through to the other side, stretches his hand over this sea. And immediately, or no, before he gets his people to the other side, I'm sorry, immediately the Lord sends a powerful easterly wind. The same wind that brought in the locusts. The same wind that uh, we see in the book of Jonah. This same wind comes and it blows straight into the faces of the Israelite and the Egyptians. It blows so hard all night. It's a wind that's so powerful uh, that it sculpts water as if it were sand. And it carves a path forward leaving a wall of water, standing water on their left and their right. I have to admit, when I read this, all the time I think of that scene from The Prince of Egypt. You remember the animated movie starring Val Kilmer uh, about the story of the Exodus. And when the Israelites go through that water, and it's night, and there's thunder and lightning, and it's a terrifying scene because God is in their midst. And as they're walking through this wall of water, sheepishly kind of going along, they'll see thunder, and on their side, they'll see a big whale in the water that's at eye level with them. Just a supernatural occurrence. They're absolutely astonished as they see titanic sea beasts and swarming schools of fish in these walls of water. And the Lord is leading through, guiding them through, passing through in their midst every step of the way. But Pharaoh and his armies are not impressed. They drive into the sea after them, pursuing them all night through wind and waves. But when morning dawns and the people are to the other side, the Lord looks down from His pillar He looks from this pillar of wind and fire and throws the military into a frenzied confusion. See, Pharaoh in his pride at the beginning said, look at the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They're out by the sea. They're confused. They don't know where they're going. Look who's really the one that's confused. These chariots start colliding with each other. Their wheels start to rattle. Their axles start to shatter. Their horses start to run into one another. And finally, 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 it clicks. The Egyptians say the Lord is fighting for Israel and we need to leave. But they cannot because they've chosen their path. And God's final act of punishment is to destroy the wicked heart of power that never truly repents and only perpetually enslaves. See, I'm convinced even if the Lord let the Egyptians escape, it would be only a matter of days before they regroup and press further into Israel. See, they're not really repenting here. They're only uh, experiencing sorrow for the consequences, but not sorrow for the actions that led to those consequences. And so the Lord sees that Pharaoh's heart is incurably hard. That the Egyptians' heart is incurably hard. And so he gives them the wages of their own sin and lets the catastrophe of death rain down on them. 
as the Lord creates a path, divides water from water, a creation act that lets the Israelites go through, we see a decreation act happen for the unbelieving. He lets those waters that He gathers up and separates so that life can exist collapse back on themselves and death destroy the Egyptians, allowing them to be crushed by these walls of water as they come crashing on their heads, sending them to a watery and abysmal grave. Well, folks, it's from here we're debriefed on what happens next. In verse 30 we read, that day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I'm convinced that detail is left in there because the Israelites, just like the Egyptians are stubborn with their pride, the Israelites are stubborn with their fear. They wouldn't really believe that God had saved them until they see their enemy dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And finally, they believed in Him and His servant Moses. And so finally, they believed. Not when God sent Moses with a message of salvation. Not when God plagued Egypt. Either did they believe. And not when God guarded and guided them as a pillar of fire. All of these things. We never hear that the Israelites believe the Lord. But after this, finally, like it clicked with the Egyptians that they're in trouble, it clicks with the Israelites too. When God crushed Pharaoh and his army under the Red Sea, finally, they stopped fearing their circumstances and began to instead reverentially fear the Lord, believing in Him. Folks, it's this same God, this God of the Passover, whose table we come to today in fellowship and in peace. But let's be honest, we're just like Israel. We have continued on in our life of disbelief and disobedience. But it's never been up to us, never, to get our acts together to save ourselves. We, like them, were dead and gone in our sins and trespasses. No matter what the Lord did for us, we never believed Him. But God still tells us, don't be afraid. Look, See, my salvation is here. And His name is Jesus. He is the Lord. And He not only passed over Egypt in judgment, He passed over Israel in mercy. But more than that, He has passed through our very human lives as the Lamb of God slain for us. His bread, or His body, the bread, His blood, the cup. It's His death, sacrificial on the cross. By His blood, we are saved. And He has sent the winds and fire of His Holy Spirit into our hearts and our lives to give us new life. We don't need to fear a single thing in this life anymore, folks. Not war, nor disease, not poverty, nor isolation, not tragedy, nor even death, because while those things may come in this world, they will never have the victory. Never. And Jesus, quite literally, come hell or high water, we will pass through to the other side, the side of glory and resurrection, of eternal love and forgiveness, 
So I say with Moses before me, don't be afraid, Maranatha. The salvation of the Lord is here. Let's pray. Lord, be our God with us as we come to Your table. You have passed over us in judgment and passed through us in grace. And You have done this all through the saving person and work of Your Son, our Lord Jesus. And so we pray with our brother Patrick before us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ above us, Christ below us, Christ to our left, Christ to our right, Christ within us, and Christ passing passing through us both now and forever. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.